Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, the presenter, and I take you on an interesting journey where I take a piece of pop culture and show you either deliberately or maybe accidentally there's some real history lurking underneath the surface. Now, full disclosure here, I am a huge fan of Christopher Nolan and pretty much the whole of 2020, I've been trying to work out, can I do one on Tenet? Yet to crack that one. Sorry, guys. Or maybe this is a time-travelling conundrum and I've already cracked it. Who knows? The answer is no, I, have, I haven't cracked it. But there is absolutely one of his movies, I'm going to say one of his underrated films, that we can absolutely have a conversation about. That movie is The Prestige. And just like The Prestige, this podcast has a twist. Hello, everybody. It's Greg speaking from behind the scenes. Now, normally, when you hear my voice cropping up like this on the podcast, it means that while I'm busy doing the edit... I've decided to correct Jem on something that he's got wrong or add some extra information. But guess what? The twist is that this time I am not in the edit booth. I'm right here with Jem. Jem, hello! Well, well, you're not right here with me, are you? Well, no, obviously, <laughs> because of the whole world situation, we are socially distanced. We are both sitting in our own bubbles on opposite opposite parts of the country, different parts of the country, but we are we are here virtually, which I think is as good as you're gonna get in twenty twenty. Well, I think I think the irony is that we used to do this podcast this way because Greg's in the Isle of Wight, I'm in London. This podcast doesn't exactly make money, so we've always done it remotely. There, there are a few episodes that might still be up on the feed where we've actually sat down and recorded live, literally looking at each other, and we both said in the past, that's really weird. <laughs> so here we are, we've actually got one together. And the, the reason for this, for, for those of you who've been following this podcast for years, I think you can guess why Greg's got to jump in on this. This one. But for those newer listeners, Greg, perhaps explain a little bit of your background and why you you basically trump me when it comes to the world of the prestige. The reason I trump you when it comes to the world of the prestige is for those of you who haven't seen the prestige, it's about magicians and it's about old fashioned turn of the century magicians. And as it happens, that is the main part of my job these days. I am a magician. I go around. I'm a performer and entertainer. I have been for a long time, but Slowly but surely over the last 
15, 16 years of my performance life, I've slowly moved away from acting or anything where I have to remember lines, and I've slowly become more and more of a, an all-round entertainer and then gradually drifted more and more into just focusing on magic. And really, this year, that has been more than ever my main focus. But along with actually really enjoying performing magic, I have this huge fascination with the history of magic, and particularly that turn-of-the-century time when magic was a huge thing and you've got these big old-fashioned magic posters, and it really took on its own form of art, and some of the most famous people in the world were magicians. We have famous magicians these days. You've got your David Copperfields, your David Blaine's, your Darren Browns. You don't have to have a D to start your name, but it helps, apparently. Penn and Teller, people like that that you've heard of. But if you go back to the early 20th century, the name Houdini was everywhere. Everybody knew Houdini's name, and even now... If you go into the middle of Las Vegas and you're standing there in Las Vegas and you're standing there between a great big poster that says David Copperfield and a great big poster that says Penn and Teller and, and a poster that says Matt King and you go up to 10 random people and you just say to them, quick, name a magician, I bet you more than half of those people are probably going to leap in with Houdini as the first name. It's a name that's synonymous with magic. So that whole period, and because that's sort of the period that's being dealt with in the prestige. I couldn't let Jim get away with doing this one on his own. The interesting thing about the prestige is, uh, so this is what happened was Christopher Nolan made the three Batman movies. Prior to that, he'd made some really interesting thrillers and therefore people were a little bit surprised that he was going to get involved in Batman. But clearly what he wanted to do was make Batman as realistic as you could basically make him, as opposed to the Joel Schumacher movies, which were just glorious kitsch, basically. However, in between each one of those Batman movies, he went on and made another film and actually used quite a lot of the cast members from it as well. So in between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, you have The Prestige, then the one between the Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. That was Inception. That's probably my favourite Nolan movie. And then after the third one, after that, he's finished the Batman movies. And then we move on to things like Interstellar. But the point is, he's using the same kind of characters or same actors. So Michael Caine was first introduced to Christopher Nolan in the first Batman movie, but he's got a major part in The Prestige. Indeed, Batman is in The Prestige. And also, so's Wolverine. And am I right in remembering Scarlett Johansson's in it? Scarlett Johansson's, yes, she's in it as well. So we've got The Black Widow. We've got our own superhero movie going on here. But what's great to hear is for a change, uh, particularly Hugh Jackman is not playing somebody with anger management issues. We get to see a very different side of, of him in this role and we're going to do our best to avoid spoilers but we will obviously have to sort of like mention various characters and things like that one of the key people in this movie is tesla and the fact that we got nikola tesla means as you said this has to be late 19th early 20th century played by david bowie who is absolutely perfect to play somebody like tesla because he is a sort of like a little bit weird and unusual, although how weird and unusual Tesla actually was, that's a whole debate in and of itself. But it fits 
the film and there's a scene in the movie of this field covered in in snow but with lots of light bulbs in it and they're all glowing even though they're not attached to anything and that really happened tesla was fascinated by electrical current he kept experimenting in it and actually the alternating current the sort of ac dc current that we have today is tesla's idea not edison's and he actually was producing so much ambient electrical charge from his experiments that he did literally have a field with light bulbs that were glowing, which looked like magic for all intents and purposes. And and really, this is what kind of the prestige is sort of about, because behind the scenes, we all know there's no such thing as magic magic, as in sort of Harry Potter magic. So we always sort of have an unwritten relationship or contract with a magician where it's like, we know you're going to trick us, but the joy is how you trick us to give us this appearance of something impossible actually happening. But obviously, if you've got someone like Tesla, he can help you with actual science. And indeed, there are a number of magicians out there that do sort of scientific experiments, or someone like Darren Brown, who uses proven psychological processes to create this sense of wonderment. So that's where I'm sort of starting off from here, just to put a bit of background on Pulp Fiction and where where we are and what, what the hell is the prestige if you've never heard of it. But I'm just curious, from your perspective, can you actually tell when this is? I mean, is it that historically accurate, or is this just sort of a mishmash of stuff that happened around about 1900? I think it's vaguely turn of the century. It's really difficult to sort of position it exactly in time, but we do get one or two little references. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about him a little bit later on, but Chung Ling Su makes an appearance at one point in the film quite early on. It's supposed to be Chung Ling Su that makes the goldfish bowl appear. And... He, by 1918, is dead. So that starts to give us an idea of where it would be in the grand scheme of time. It's got to be pre-1918. I'll come to his death a little bit later on when we get into the plot a bit more. But so it's going to be that early, somewhere between, I think, 1900 and 1918 is a pretty good time period to have this set in. And the whole idea of bringing in Tesla and everything else... I think is fascinating because it was a time like now when technology is moving forwards. And the same as now, there's this huge push always for technological magic. There's some people who just want the latest technology in their magic. There are other people, I would class myself in the second camp, who try and take as much technology as possible out of the magic because it's just something else to go wrong. But I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that I think it's Clark's third law, that any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If I take my iPhone back 30, 40, 50 years, if I take my iPhone back to the early 80s even, even the early 90s, the iPhone I've got now, that is just going to be a magical device. Nobody's going to understand how it works. I mean, it won't work because it won't have any thing to connect to but the basic idea is it'd just be fascinating the fact that I could have a tv screen that small and so the idea that you can use modern technology loads of people have started moving into trying to get iphone and ipad magic and in fact i think that is a bubble that's burst already an iphone is such a magical instrument anything you do on it straight away is is going to get lost but i remember i had a trick very very early on when the first iphones came out 
it was a nice ghost effect. I could borrow somebody's iPhone, turn around, take a photograph and hand it back to them. And they'd look at the photograph and there was a ghost in the photograph. And it was a lovely effect. The thing is, nowadays there are a billion apps that could probably do exactly the same thing. And we all just so used to the iPhone instantly manipulating photographs that it doesn't work. So yeah, we have that technological aspect. Everyone's pushing for the latest technology. Now, I'm just going to have to jump in here for a moment, Greg, and say as a sort of warning to our viewers or a a sort of managing your expectations, Greg frequently talks about his tricks. And right then when he was talking about how this ghost appeared in the photo, you're thinking, how did he do that? He ain't going to tell you. Sometimes he tells me behind the scenes, but even I find it hard to sort of winkle the information out of him. I'll give you another example about the iPhone. I was at a corporate do years ago when I still went to corporate do's, Christmas parties, and there was a close um, a close proximity magician, close hand, up close, Oh, what's the term, Greg? Close up, close up, magician. <laughs> Thank you. Close up, close up. And he basically took my my phone, so I knew it was my phone, uh, out of the case. And on the back of it, there's an Apple symbol on it, and in the middle. And he sort of like fiddled around with it for like three seconds, gave it back to me, and the Apple symbol was way up at the top. And I, to this day, don't know how he did that. Now, does that mean I believe that this man was a magician who was able to manipulate matter? No, I don't. He clearly did a trick, but it was good enough that as an intelligent individual, I couldn't work out how he was tricking me. And apparently, and and I'm going to sort of bounce back to Greg in a moment, what I've heard from like live performances of magic is adults are easier to trick because we're so used to social norms. If you say something like, look over there, we tend to look over there. The hardest audience is small children because they don't know that. And and so they're looking in completely the wrong place and can see you palming the coin or whatever. And, and you know, they can very easily ruin the trick. By going, Why are you holding that in your other hand kind of thing? Is that true? There is a certain element of truth to that. It's the social convention. It's why one of my favourite age groups to actually perform for very often is sort of 10 11 year olds where they're old enough to know those social conventions but still young enough to be absolutely blown away by everything just to give you a basic idea if I'm trying to do a trick with you and I ask you a question you have to think of the answer and if it's a question first thing we're all trained to do is if I ask you a question you tend to look at me when you reply but you tend to look straight in my eyes when you reply it's a a natural thing we've learned growing up the other thing is if it's a question about you If I ask you what's your favourite colour or something, you have to internalise. For a moment, you have to think inside your head. And the great thing is, not only do you have to think inside your head, but everyone else listening will, in that moment, think about what's their favourite colour. They'll think inside their head. And I have that moment of what we call misdirection. I have that moment where I can just do something sneaky. Now, the problem is that if you're somebody too young or... The other thing is if you're performing in a different country, because a lot of the time we have different social conventions, different social norms in different countries. We react a certain way to a certain social cue in this country. They may not necessarily react the same way in a different country. And so you do end up with this situation where magic changes with the audience. There are certain effects, of course, that you can just do with everyone. But one of the things that I find really good while we're talking about magic and methods, and as you say, I'm going to try and avoid spoilers. I'm also by and large going to avoid giving away methods for tricks in this unless I think we get to a point where I I have to sort of mention a method because it takes us so far into a historical effect that 
it doesn't matter. And by the way, if you're interested in this period and you're interested in the magic of this period, there's a guy called Jim Steinmeier who writes a fantastic book called Hiding the Elephant. Well worth a read if you're interested in this period. Basically lets you know a lot of how some of these early tricks were done. But one of the things that I find fascinating about magic is that when you first look at it, like you've said there, it's fascinating. It's not about being tricked. It's about, you know, it's not that you believe the magic. It's that you wonder how the magician's done it or whatever. And from my point of view, there's a point to which that's true. But after that, there's a point to which actually it's not even about wondering how the magician did it. It is about being entertained by the magician and what is wrapped up in that trick. And there's so much more to it. One of the fascinating things about Houdini, going back to the right era, is when Houdini was doing his famous show where he vanished an elephant. He he vanished an elephant in front of people at the Hippodrome. The whole audience surrounded all the way around and they'd bring out this elephant and he'd make the elephant vanish. That wasn't the only trick he did. He was doing tricks all evening. And outside there were people selling pamphlets that gave away the methods for the tricks. And people would buy them, go in, watch it, and still enjoy the show because the method was not necessarily the most important thing. And I think that is one thing with the prestige is they do kind of, in a couple of cases, get bogged down with method. But it's interesting, we're going back to the prestige. Let's talk about that. because Yes, yeah. Now, you mentioned Houdini a fair few times. Houdini isn't technically in the film, but in a way he is, because if you like, the centrepiece of this movie is to do with something that Houdini's famous for, right? And that's right. And I was going to sort of come on to that because it's it's going to be where I oppose what I'm about to say next. Because <laughs> one of the big things for this film that I notice as a magician is what you said about the way Christopher Nolan handled the Batman films, that when he did the Batman films, he wanted them to be as real as possible. And what I really enjoy with this film is he's tried to do the same thing with the prestige. Now, there are moments when he deviates from this for various reasons, but by and large, he has tried to make the magic real. He does give away a couple of methods, and I'm going to be talking about one of those in a big way in a minute, but he tries to make the magic real. Now, as opposed to, I don't know, have you seen the film Now You See Me? I haven't, actually. I keep meaning to. I've heard very mixed things about it. Yeah, as a magician, I really, really don't like it because the magic in there doesn't make sense. It's not magic tricks that could be done. They, they don't make it... It's CGI, right? It's all CGI and it's all just sort of, yes, you're okay. If you can control everything that happens in a film, you can write the plot. It's a bit more like um, a heist movie, which it partially is, in that if you write a heist movie, you can actually have everything happen exactly the way you want it, and so they'll get away with the heist. You, you can control everybody's actions, whereas a lot of the time, if you watch a heist movie and you think, if you just try to do that in real life, it wouldn't work. Whereas in The Prestige, all of the magic is real. Almost all of it, they've actually thought about methods. He's actually gone back and found out methods that were used at the time. I know Christian Bale. I mean, Christian Bale is a real, real method actor in that way. I know he gained a load of weight, gained a load of muscle for Batman, lost a whole load of weight for the machinist. And he actually learned a lot of sleight of hand magic with the ball throughout the whole film Christian Bale's character does magic with his little red ball and he actually learnt a lot of sleight of hand magic with that learnt to do it properly so a lot of the magic that runs through and a lot of the ideas of magic that run through it 
are correct. And then, Jim, we get to this escape. Do, do you remember the scene with the escape? Do you want us to talk us through the significance of the escape in the plot? Well, you see, the escape, you're talking about the, the water. The water escape, yes. Do you want me to spoil the whole thing or not? I, I think it's quite early on in the film. I think you can tell us how the how, what happens, yeah. OK, well, I think pretty much the opening shot is of Hugh Jackman in this water thing and he's sort of drowning and Christian Bale's desperately trying to save him. And then it's sort of kind of told in flashback, typical Christopher Nolan. Let's pause that one. So that's the sort of the opening shot. The But then we get to see that escape on stage with Hugh Jackman's wife, rather rather than a bit that might spoil the end of the, sh- the film. Do you remember seeing... Yes, yes, so I don't want to... Get... Yeah, I, so I, I remember the scene, but if you like... So uh, what I'm curious about is, as a layman, this is very much associated with Houdini. Now, there was even the incorrect rumour that Houdini died. Because Houdini died. He died apparently doing this trick. He was actually died when somebody punched him in the stomach thinking he could take the punch and he wasn't ready and then he died of internal damage. Uh, I am right on that, correct? Mm. No. no. Oh, man. No. Okay. All right. So, okay. No, no, how did you're, Houdini you're, die? Old age? You're more, you're more right than you would have been if you'd said he drowned. Basically, I think there's a, a 1955 film in which they actually show him drowning. He did actually, on one occasion, do... So this is the Chinese water torture cell. That's what Houdini referred to it as. Awful lot of references to Chinese and Eastern, especially in this era of magic. But basically, the effect is that... Houdini would be strapped by his ankles into the lid of a box, he would be chained up, and then that lid is lowered into a water tank, locked down, curtain comes up, Houdini has to free himself in time. And Did they have the glass front in the original? Yes, it was all glass. Could people see it? People could see it, but they couldn't actually see the escape. You'd always do it with curtains pulled up. So they'd, they'd bring up curtains around it so you can't actually see how the escape is done. You'd see that he was clearly in there, but you didn't actually get to see the escape in any version of that one that I'm aware of. But basically, so he would do that, and he'd be lowered in. Now, on one occasion, he'd actually managed to break his ankle during the first... I think it was during the first part of the show he'd managed to break his ankle. He still tried to do the water torture cell, and he passed out. And that... He was saved, he was brought out, it was absolutely fine. That is one part of that. Then... Later on, as you rightly say, he used to have this effect where he'd tense the muscles in his stomach and his claim was that if he was punched in the stomach, anyone could punch him and he had huge boxers punch him in the stomach and it just didn't affect him. He'd just walk away. I mean, it did, it hurt him quite a lot, but I think it was partly acting and partly the muscle thing. But then one day he was out and about and a Canadian student came up to him and said, I hear you can take a punch in the stomach. And there's some suggestion that Houdini was not paying attention and just kind of said, yep, didn't really follow what was being said. And this guy just immediately hauled off and punched him in the stomach. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That is where that sort of myth comes from because... He did die within 24 hours of that happening. What he actually died of was a ruptured appendix. Now, having looked historically, obviously, this is where we get the idea he was punching the stomach and he died. The doctors that have looked at this, studied this, there is no way that that punch actually immediately caused Houdini's death. There's no way that that punch would have ruptured the appendix. The appendix, he had a problem with anyway, it had almost certainly already burst by that point in time. What really killed Houdini was his refusal to go to the hospital. He was insistent he was going to carry on, he was going to carry on, he was going to be fine, and he died as a result of a burst appendix. So the, the stomach punch is in there, but it's kind of not. But the important part of that is Houdini had at one point done the water torture cell, had a broken ankle, passed out, and he'd been fine. Uh, you can also find, there's a clip on YouTube, I can't think of the escape artist's name, but there's a female escape artist over in America and poor thing, she was doing a water tank escape in the middle of a, I think it was a basketball game. So it's that huge basketball arena performance and she got in the water and she passed out. It was just a, a freak thing. But again, it's that slightly awkward moment where she... Did she survive? She survived. She was absolutely fine. But which is kind of the point I'm going to get to, because this is one of the points where they kind of go wrong in the film Prestige, because Hugh Jackman's wife, one of the big plot points we find out quite early on is that she dies performing an escape on stage. She is tied up, and the thing is, she's tied up by Christian Bale's character... And the question is, which knot he tied? Because certain knots, if you tie certain knots, the ropes swell up and you can't possibly undo them underwater. And then when they run on to save her, they've got the people with axes and they're trying to smash the front off of the box and all of this. And eventually she just drowns as part of the act. Well, here's the thing. If that was true, I would lose every shred of respect for all of the characters in that film, especially Michael Caine's character, who's the one that's supposed to come up with the illusions. If you are doing that water escape, you are ready for something to go wrong. You are not going to let somebody drown just for the sake of it. I've done water escapes and things. You always have a backup plan. For example, I mean, she was locked in that box, but somebody had the key to the lid. Rather than sending people in to spend ages trying to smash through the front of this water torture cell, you could have broken through. Also, there are different types of rope. 
and I have done water escapes with ropes and one of the most important jobs is to make sure you are using a rope that doesn't swell up and bind when it gets into the water. They're sort of beginner mistakes. The whole thing, just that scene in itself is one of those where I think they, they've taken dramatic effect over magic. That's one of the big moments for me in the film where I did watch it and go, nah, I'm going to let this slide because we have to assume we're living in a world where it was impossible for them to save her. But in reality, if anyone was doing that particular magic trick and there was any real risk of somebody dying, I would have no respect for them whatsoever. So it's, it's almost like they had, in the real world, they probably had three or four genuine chances to save her and each one of those failed. Yeah, exactly. But we didn't see any of that. They didn't go for any of the other effects. They just went straight in with axes on a screen that Get they can the break. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. But... To me, it's part of the idea of the film, though, that they do hold the method as far more important, the secrets far more important than anything else. And that's what would happen if you decided that the secret of that trick was more important than the life of the performer, then yes, the axes are the only way to go. In reality, I don't think there's anyone that would actually take that particular decision at that moment in time. As Jim Steinmeier, the guy I mentioned earlier, one of his fantastic lines is, magicians are guarding an empty box. Yeah, yeah, I, I've heard that line. If you actually find the secret to magic, yeah, you find a secret to magic, very often there is no real secret. Teller of Penn and Teller has another line. His, his idea is that the way mag most magic works is the magician has spent more time thinking about it and practising it than you think it could possibly be <laughs> worth, which I think is another fan. You know, when you try and figure out how a magician did a magic trick, you think, how would a magician do that magic trick with 50 quid and what, what would I put into it? Maybe 10 hours or something? Maybe I'll put, give a day to it. Whereas you're not thinking what would happen if you spent a year working on one silly trick. There is actually a, a dangerous magic trick in the film as well that is actually taken and is fully dangerous. And I am aware, Jim, that these days you present this podcast and I've come on as your guest almost, and I've, I'm just kind of railroading through the whole thing. That That's fine. That's I, I, So for those of you who, who are fairly new to this podcast, this is the editor guy who is usually virtually mute and now he's got something to say. And you, you can see that when Greg's got something to say, you just can't shut him up. Now, you go for it. I, we do need to go back to Chun... What's his name? The Chinese... Chun Ling Su. Yeah. You need to do... Give us Chun Ling Su and you need to give us this this next bit and then we're probably close to, to coming out of time. Fantastic, because those two bits tie together perfectly because the one thing that I do want to talk about because it's a fascinating, tragic subject is the bullet catch. Now, at one point in the film, I think I can give this away without spoiling anything, Christian Bale is fascinated by the idea he wants to do a bullet catch. His character wants to do a bullet catch. Michael Caine says to him, no, we don't do bullet catches. It's too dangerous. We wouldn't risk somebody, which again makes me think that Michael Caine would not have allowed the woman to drown in the box in the first place, but that's beside the point. But he says, no, it's too dangerous. Christian Bale eventually ends up moving on and doing his own show, and he tells his wife that he's going to do this bullet catch. And she says, well, no you can't do it I want to know that it's safe and the method that they were using back then is very simple they used to have a ramrod in a gun so you'd drop some powder in then you drop the bullet in you would tamp the bullet down with one of those long ramrods you would take the ramrod out and then you would 
be able to fire the bullet. Well, he shows in the film that the particular method he's going to use is as the ram rod goes in, the ram rod removes the bullet, secretly removes the bullet. He takes it out. There's no bullet in the gun. That means when he's on stage, someone just points the gun at him, pulls the trigger. It's essentially firing a blank and he can catch the bullet in his teeth by putting it there secretly. Very, very simple method and yet incredibly dangerous. Because in the film, what happens is that Hugh Jackman's character sneaks on stage and puts something in the gun. And the reason I'm giving away that particular plot twist is because that is not something that the filmmakers made up, the idea of putting something in the gun. It happened. Ooh. It happened in 1840. A magician called Arnold Buck actually had a volunteer who came on stage and dropped nails into the barrel of the gun. And so, of course, the bullet had been removed, but when they pulled, pulled the gun, the nails came flying out and the nails worked in exactly the same way as a bullet and that killed Buck. There have actually been... Was that... All right, I now have to ask, do you happen to know if that individual was tried for murder or anything like that? I don't know what happened to that particular person, no. Actually, on that particular occasion, some people were. Some people were charged, tried for murder. I mean, one of the ones that was definitely tried for murder. I'm trying to think of the name of the magician off the top of my head. One of the magicians, he was actually shot by his wife. She would do the same trick every single night. She would put the bullet in the gun, remove it for him. She would be the one that was responsible for pulling the trigger. And they had had some, a rather major marital riff. And so she actually just used a live bullet and shot him. Again, I don't know what the result of that, but I know she was arrested for the murder. It's a very, very difficult thing you get this plot line sort of coming up now and again in Murder, She Wrote or something like that, that they've swapped out the stage dagger for a real dagger or they've swapped out the stage gun for a real gun. And the whole thing happens. I want to share just two more of these stories with you. One of them... Just before you jump in there, I think what this... We started with the prestige, but what this is is how magic can save you money on a divorce, <laughs> OK? We've got Hugh Jackman's wife dying in the water thing. We've now got a wife shooting her husband. Yeah, basically, Greg, watch out for Felicity is all I'm going to say, OK? It's why, as a general rule, I think the bullet catch is a bad idea. Penn and Teller do an incredible version now that is completely safe. Their method is completely secret. That is one of the things they have actually managed to keep properly guarded. But they do an incredible version now with two guns and two bullets. But what's interesting is anyone else I've ever seen perform the bullet catch or any variation of it, including a terrible version I saw a couple of years ago on a TV show called Killer Magic where they performed it with a paintball gun, and I thought, well, that's not killer magic at all, is it? <laughs> but, but even they, the first thing they do is they run down this huge list of all these people that have died doing the bullet catch. They really try and build up the tension. If you go and see Penn & Teller's magic show, they don't, they don't ever refer to them as guns. They don't talk about anyone that's died. They don't even call it a bullet catch. It's called Magic Bullets, and they are magically transporting a bullet from one side of the stage to the other. They don't even mention the fact that they're going to shoot each other in the face. But that is a modern one that hopefully never, ever goes wrong, touch wood. We had one where Madame Delinsky, who was actually an assistant, they, would, they actually brought on soldiers to come on stage, load their own rifles and fire. And she was performing for the royal court in Germany in 1820. And... Basically, the way that they did the trick was incredibly simple. 
it was money. They paid off the six soldiers that they were going to bring on stage. They paid them off to only load blanks. And unfortunately, one of the riflemen, he was nervous on stage and he basically just went through his regular routine of loading the gun and he loaded the gun and ended up firing live ammunition into this magician's assistant. Similar thing happened a few years later with one magician who would load his gun and he would use a very, very similar method to the one we actually see in The Prestige, where he'd load the gun and he'd tamp down a bullet and he'd secretly have a magnet in the end. But what he would use to tamp down the bullet was his magic wand. And this was one of those old traditional magic wands with the white bit in the centre and it actually had brass end pieces on it. And so what he'd do is he'd tamp down the bullet and as he tamped it down, the magnet would pick up the musket ball on one end, he'd pull it out, flip it over and he'd give it one more tamp down with the other end of the magic wand. And what he missed on the final performance was the fact that the end of the magic wand had fallen off inside the gun. And he was actually shot with his own magic wand. Anyway, back to Chung Ling Su. We're going to finish up with Chung Ling Su, I think, because we're probably running long now. But Chung Ling Su, he appears, He's if you've seen the film, he's the old Chinese guy who appears in the beginning of the film. And this is such a thing of turn-of-the-century magic. Now, I told you he dies in 1918, and he died in 1918 doing a trick called Condemned to Death by the Boxers. And this was basically he brought on stage and they had guns set up and there was a certain trick to the guns so that the gunpowder didn't really fire out the bullet. However, the guns were not being properly cleaned between performances and that meant that the gunpowder was slowly building up inside the tube and eventually it did have enough gunpowder built up inside that it could fire the bullet straight into his chest. And on the last night, Chung Ling Su, this, this poor performer, he was billed as Chung Ling Su, the marvellous Chinese conjurer. And he came on stage and that was his, his last performance and he was shot. And as he went down, he said his last words on stage... And it was the first time he'd ever spoken English on stage. And in a broad Scottish accent, he said, Oh my God, bring down the curtain, something has happened. And that broad Scottish accent was the first clue that his audiences had that he was not actually originally born Chung Ling Su at all. His name was Billy Robinson and he was from Scotland. Yes, I think this is the point where we have to say that's an example of of its time. The real problem that people have today, and you know, we we you know, this is a whole other conversation. It's sort of like, ah, oh, you know, this is disgraceful. It wouldn't be allowed today, and you're right. But the problem here is that back in the day, cultural sensitivities just didn't exist. Uh, to put it another way, you go back a hundred years, everybody on planet Earth was a racist. Everybody thought their own country, their own race, was the best one on the planet because of ignorance. So nice to see today that we were far more sensitive about these things, and we certainly don't want to do things like cultural appropriation. But this is an example where... Yeah, you've got a Scottishman pretending. And uh, when you said he'd never been heard speaking English, I'm pretty sure, and I think you'll back me up on this, the Chinese he was talking was complete gibberish. Yes, most of the time the Chinese was complete gibberish. But this is somebody who, it's a weird situation because, yes, these days that doesn't happen. And yet we have this incredible hangover in magic 
where a lot of these effects, because they were invented right around the turn of the century, a lot of things we use have names that are really culturally inappropriate for a start. But we have things. There is an effect called the Chinese laundry basket. And it is a, a very nice effect where you sort of put your whatever it is, dirty socks into this thing, turn the handle, open it up, and oh no, your socks have shrunk or they've grown or they've suddenly got holes in. And it's a great effect. But these days, I still see that occasionally marketed as the Chinese laundry basket rather than the, the magic laundry basket or anything. And it is changing slowly. But these effects, they do have names from this time. And it is just amazing that at that period of time, people thought it in some way appropriate to instead of just coming out and performing as yourself to basically take on all of these eastern personas and one of the fascinating things i think about chung ling su is this is not somebody who was who was being deliberately culturally inappropriate in any way he was not this was not really supposed to be a mockery of a chinese performer this was not in any way poking fun as i say people genuinely didn't realize that Chung Ling Su was not this real mystical person coming from China. It was more this idea was that, wow, there's this incredible magical place over there. And so performers wanted to capture that. And like you say, it's cultural appropriation rather than outright racist mockery that we, you often get if you see somebody go back to the 60s and you see somebody playing someone from China on TV and they're doing that horrendously offensive voice and all the incredibly offensive jokes. That's not what this was aimed at. This was somebody who had just was playing a character who he had decided to be Chinese. So it does fall into the, one of the really difficult points. And as you're fond of saying, Jim, we cannot judge history by the morality of today. Right, well, I'm going to be taking back this podcast now. Get out the way, Greg. As I say to everybody, look, this is the way we, we used to do it. And as you've just heard, the sheer enthusiasm from Greg, it, it's a sort of miracle we've been able to keep him this quiet uh, when he's been doing the editing behind the scenes. Now, I want to absolutely put it out there. I, I wanted you to take this over. This is your area of expertise, not mine. Um, it's been great fun doing it. Also... Uh, anytime you want to come back, feel free to do so. We, I love doing these ones, but uh, hopefully people are also enjoying the, the new format as well. And now, Greg, shall we do the old sign-off? I would like to say most of all a wonderful and incredible thank you to my wonderful and, dare I say it, magical co-host, Mr. Jem Daducci. And take care to yourself, Greg. And thank you to you all for listening. But for now, please take unbelievably good care of yourselves and of each other. And Jem will see you next week. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.